You're listening to the Evolution Exchange Podcast Australia, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful tech leaders. I'm Henry Tetley. I help connect businesses with tech talent. And today I'm your host. Welcome, guys, to the latest episode of the Evolution Exchange podcast. Um, so today we're going to be talking about the tips and strategies of scaling a development team. So whether you're facing the challenges of doubling your team size or expanding into new markets, this podcast is going to have you covered. Um, so let's get into the intros. Saurabh, would you like to kick us off? Sure. Uh, hi, my name is Saurabh Bhatia. I'm uh, an engineering manager at Paloma Group in Sydney. Um, I look after a number of clients and also engineers. So my day job involves working with a lot of different kinds of stakeholders. Back to you. Awesome. Cheers, Saurabh. Rich, over to you. Hi, I'm Rich Lane. I'm currently the CTO at uh, One Orange Cow. Um, recently, I've just done two decades living in Japan, gained sort of valuable knowledge into the global markets, cross-cultural dynamics, I guess. Um, I work variety of fields, IT, cybersecurity, fintech, blockchain. My expertise lies broadly in the payment and software as a service space. I specialize in developing multi, you know, the development platforms, data immunity, um, Web3 in general. Uh, we have currently a new product coming out, hopefully launching this week called Data OT. Um, and thanks for the invite. No worries. Great to have you, Rich. And Max, over to you. Yeah, um, I'm a senior engineering manager working at Coverginius, so based in Sydney. Um, when I joined the company, it was like under 20 people, and that was maybe five years ago. Now it's uh, over 500 people, so I thought it's a perfect perfect set of topics for me to be talking about um, managing several teams of engineers here and abroad. Yeah, awesome. Great stuff. Well, as I say, thanks for joining us, guys. Um, you know, today's a, a really, really interesting topic, um, and I'm sure there's going to be lots of valuable insights that are going to be shared. Um, so let's uh, let's start with uh, with Rich. What you wanted to talk about? So balancing a developer's need to explore new things whilst meeting deadlines can be a challenge. So how would you balance that? Um, so I might start with the problem that the question raises, which is, you know, a developer always, and this is. You know, my opinion, obviously, but um, a developer, broadly speaking, wants to develop their skill set. They want to try things new, which means going into gray areas, which means going into experimental things, new builds, new versions. And while that could be great, it exposes, I guess, the product or the customer to some sort of risk because it's untested, it's untried. Um, and then the, the counter outside to that is like you just do the, try and te- the, the tried and tested and the developer just isn't interested in doing that because they're doing the same thing every day. So the question is, how do you balance that need to give the developers on your team the challenge that they might want versus delivering the reliability that the customer might need? So um, if I'm going to answer it for me, um, it is a difficult question. Um, and you have to sort of skirt an edge of making sure you've got enough testing to handle it. And if you do push the envelope to the customer, you've made sure that the customer is a little bit risk aware and that they they know what they're getting. So um, you also got to make sure that if you do have a problem that you deliver something and it's on the edge, that you're able to quickly uh, fix it. And there's enough documentation, enough community to support any problems. The other issue 
is that if you're using open source software, you might not even develop the modules or the libraries that you have and you have to wait for a patch for it to be released. So you've got all these different things that I believe you have to make sure that they're interested in. One solution is, I guess this is just me speaking, um, divide things up. So obviously you've got your day in, day out work that needs to be done, but spice that up with developers, maybe give 20% of their time, 30% of their time to run their own project, to run an internal project, to test um, new ways to do it, but maintain an existing way, but test new ways as well. So that that's some ideas that I've thought of, but I'd be interested to find out what other people have experienced. Awesome. Cheers, uh, cheers, Rich. Uh, Max, Saurabh, either of you got any anything anything you'd like to add to that? Um, yep. Yeah. Uh, this is actually my probably my favorite question of the ones today, <laughs> um, and it's it's certainly one I can personally talk to a lot. So I think my my first like really big um, situation like this happened many many years ago, uh, and essentially at that point I was working at an agency. And as you may, may be aware, the, a certain project would be kind of scoped out and budgeted and posted for the clients um, ahead of development. And so let's say that happened based on a certain set of technologies. Um, at the same time, there was a sort of like a new framework um, that was just kind of exploding onto the scene, still quite young. But <clears throat> uh, myself and the people in the team, we were just like start experimenting with it. And we were super keen to use it for this project. We thought it would be perfect. Um, but it was a, a truly like a Herculean uphill battle to convince management that this was the right decision. And precisely for the reason, um, Rich, that you said, right, it was for them, it was a huge business risk to them. Um, you know, they wanted to go with something that they know that the company knows that was costed against, which was really important to them. Um, and it just didn't seem like a sensible decision, right? Because it's, it's clients money that you're playing with. And if it doesn't succeed, okay, that's going to be really bad for the client and the company. Um, so we, we definitely had um, some very spirited debates and very big disagreements on this whole thing. But um, in the end, the, you know, it got up to the most senior levels of management. And the, the kind of decision making that they made was that they felt that it was the project was most likely to succeed if the engineers working on it were highly motivated and they truly were kind of committed to the project. Um, and to them, that was going to be the biggest marker of success is that if you kind of force engineers to work on something in a way that they, they're going to be really not just bored, but essentially they're like demoralized, right? They're disincentivized to do their best work versus a situation where you have, you know, you might have very, very good, very high caliber developers that might be actually quite happy to go above and beyond. and. If, if they hit some uh, roadblock, which is actually not that unlikely if you're trying something for the first time, but if they're willing to kind of, you know, work overtime, even work on the weekend to try and get through like a really, really challenging problem, something that there may not be a documentation for, for example, um, th that's way more likely to produce a successful result. So they, in the end, they did decide to, to let us use it and it, it was super successful. Like we were super, um, not only were we happy, but it was a really good outcome for the company because it kind of set the tone for the projects that were to follow. Um, obviously, that's a successful story. I'm sure there are unsuccessful stories as well, but 
but it kind of the, the thing that I really took away from this is is this this concept of how motivated or how committed are the developers. And I think now as a manager, I kind of have to look to the engineers and I have to kind of make a judgment call if they're high performance, high caliber people, and if they're willing to make a commitment that they can hit the deadline, they can hit the budget, they can do whatever it is that within the confines of which they need to operate. If they, if you can get them to buy in and to commit to that, I think it's actually even more likely that the project will succeed. But again, as a manager, okay, you have to kind of filter out maybe, I don't know, 20% of cases where it, it might actually not be a sensible decision, where it just might be like one person who's maybe they're being a little bit silly and they want to try something and, and you know, you do a little bit of research and it's like 50% of people think this is the best thing ever. 50% of people say there's going to be an unrecoverable catastrophic problem, right? <laughs> so you kind of, you have to do some marginal judgment calls. I personally, I err towards the side of trying new things and letting people do that as much as possible. But there will be, there has to be some small percentage of time where you have to be able to say no, because sometimes as a manager, you can, you should be able to see that things will just not succeed, right? So that's, that's, I think, a marginal decision you need to be able to make. But for me, I would definitely err on the side of letting letting engineers do what they think is best. Yeah. Did you guys ever have to like shave off scope uh, to to align with, with the new set of technologies, like something that might not be covered uh, in the new technology that you choose to work in, like based on what you had originally anticipated in like the product requirements? I mean, it depends on it depends on the project. Obviously, everything's different. Yeah. But I've had situations where it's like, no, we have to do all this part A, and that part A is not even relevant for this new technology. Um, yeah. It's just baked in, or it's done a different way. Um, and generally, you know, I say this with a grain of salt. Um, you can use that as you're going to run into problems with the new technology no matter what because people aren't familiar with it so keep that as a saving grace to well i'll i'll, I'll save that buffer for, for <laughs> potential problems that come up um and granted you might be given you know two months three months four months to do the project you, you you're going to utilize that that time as a total in different ways so you'll be shifting around things uh, anyway with the new tech so that's just much the Absolutely. Yeah. So I also work in uh, an agency kind of environment at the moment. And uh, the kind of challenge we face on a day to day basis is uh, is kind of trying to align people, their work and responsibilities to their aspirations. So some people and it's not necessarily related to people trying to learn new technologies. They might want to learn new kind of things, for example, if somebody's a front-end developer, they might want to le learn more back-end development, or they might want to get into DevOps, or you know something like that. Um, and it's sometimes hard to find those opportunities for them because your agency may or may not work on those kind of things, right? <laughs> so yeah. Um, but uh, in the, in in the past, we have worked around this by having some sort of like fixed LNDRs every week, like you said, like twenty percent of your time dedicated to learning and development, uh, and had we had some learning cohorts. So, for example, we don't have any like 
big projects running AWS workloads. But we had a learning group that that went through the whole AWS certification process because they wanted to. They were motivated enough to learn, and you know, so it helped the future prospects of the agency as well. So they were willing to invest in that. Um, this problem becomes a little bit harder with the product companies, especially because you have a tech stack that doesn't shift very quickly. You know, like if you are on a tech stack that's evolving, but it's it, it has to stay the same for a particular period of time. Um, there you have to get more creative to find opportunities for people to learn. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with a lot of points both of you make. Awesome. Great stuff. Um, no, appreciate the, um, the, the insights there. Um, how would you get the most out of the team that you currently have then? Rich, would you like to? Um, so I, I guess, again, speaking from my experience, you've, you've got to be a good manager. You've got to know your team's strengths um, and weaknesses, but you've also got to let, and I'm, I'm going to say this carefully, you've got to let them fail. Um, if you tell them they can't do something, they're just going to resent it, do it anyway, fail and be angry at you. So you've got to give them a challenge that you obviously hope they don't fail, but you give them a challenge that they, they're adequately do, want to do and then offer your assistance to, to do it. So if you might not know anything about the tech, but you can offer assistance in order to facilitate what, whatever they want to learn. So it's really important to sort of balance that creativity uh, that they want to do um, and I guess it's going back to the previous question but um, that that's kind of where you've got to be at least I think um, motivate them to what they want to do um, and allow give them a path to the future as well so talk it's the you know the classic what do you want to do in five years I, I really don't like that conversation but you know one day they might come in and decide hey I want to be a back-end developer like we just said and you've got to say, okay, well, if you want to do that, here's the path you need to do. So guide them on that. Let let them know what needs to be done. Um, and speak from your experience. Obviously, everyone's going to be different, but sort of give them wisdom, I guess, is is, is a word. Um, and and let let them flourish, let them fail, and help them when they falling when they fall, and and offer assistance when you can. It's general advice, but that's kind of um, what I'd recommend. Awesome. Yeah, don't don't fire that person who deleted production on in the first week of the job. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's actually a very good point. Like you got to assume that people make mistakes. Obviously, if they make it twenty times, you're gonna have a problem. But people learn from mistakes. Um, hopefully, it's not catastrophic and the business fails. But um, you got to assume that people are gonna make mistakes and um, let them make mistakes and learn from it. So that's actually a very good point too. Max, any anything to add to that? Um, yeah. Um, so I probably have a lot of different things to say. I'm just trying to think how how could I organize my answer. <laughs> um, so I, I guess I have to begin with like the first thing, it's the most important thing to me. So I I really believe that the social cohesion of a team plays a really really big role in how successful that team is. Um, and that's, I guess that's just coming from my kind of backgrounded experience that I worked with a number of different companies. And I guess I've, I've been part of teams which were not like that and that were like that. And it just seems to me that teams were much more um, productive 
when those people really kind of got to know each other, did activities together um, outside of work or during, let's say during work, but let's say at lunch or something like that. And it, it might be different things for different people. It might be sports, it might be board games, might just be going to lunch together. Um, but yeah, I, I always try and organize and encourage many different activities, um, but especially sporting activities and, you know, things after work like dinner or drinks or whatever else. Um, um, yeah, even people living in the same suburb, meeting together or something like that. So I, yeah, I really, as much as possible, I try and get my team to interact together in as many ways as possible. And I want them to have um, like a genuine human connection so that they really understand what it is that they're doing, who they're dealing with as an individual, not just like an employee of the company, but, but you know, they have a real camaraderie in the sense that they can, you know, share the burdens that we are inevitably going to have together. Um, so that's, to me, that's a really, really big deal. Um, and it's an even bigger deal now, of course, because of remote work and hybrid work. Um, yeah, it's, it's been a really big topic and probably have 10 podcasts on this topic alone, but I, I just think it, it creates such big challenges to doing that effectively. Um, and in my opinion, most companies do not, are not uh, handling that really well. Like they're not doing what it is that they need to do in order to enable the kind of collaboration that they need to have. Um, for people who are working remotely or maybe they rarely come into the office. So that I think that's kind of like a new angle on that specific aspect. And that's like a whole other discussion that I don't want to go into, but that's that's something that managers do need to manage. Um, well, that's something, yeah. You know, it's funny you say that. Uh, last week, I literally uh, recorded a uh, an episode on the transition from work from home to hybrid tech teams. Um, so um, that that'll be, you know, covering a lot of the the aspects mm. that you were sort of touching on there <laughs> yeah that'd be great to listen to um and yeah so apart from that obviously um there's a lot of other things so i think the worst the worst thing in the killer of productivity is um really monotonous repetitive kind of work um so i'm luckily i'm in a good position having um having multiple teams so there's a lot of opportunities for people to work kind of um across different projects or products or across different teams people can potentially um, swap products for a month or three months or something like that they can experience not only experience something a little bit different it may be a different um, different breakup of work but also they can work with um, other individuals that maybe they know them but they just have never worked with them directly um, and that kind of helps cross all their different ideas and different ways of thinking across different teams which is um, I think it's very interesting for engineers, but it's also really useful because um, you will always find like some team is, is doing some, you know, some weird thing differently. And it's like working really well for them, but everybody else is not aware of it. Um, it's just like all sorts of little things like this happening all the time, right? Which also takes me to my next point, which is I really try and encourage um, my teams to do um, demo day every week or at least every two weeks. So basically we, we, you know, let people volunteer and just do like a very, very um, ad hoc. So not, not like super prepared, not like a hundred slides or anything, but just like literally demo anything, anything you want, right? Could be a feature that you build, could be a new tool that you found, could be a new library you found, could be like a cool new way of doing something. Doesn't matter what it is, it's completely free for all. But you know, just like something that you find interesting. 
um, presented in front of the team. Um, and you know, there's like, um, we might, we, we allocate a little bit of our team budget to, um, gift cards now. And just, just to kind of give people a little bit of an incentive to do that. Um, you know, and especially more junior people, they might not be very, um, comfortable with, you know, things like public speaking and whatever else, but in like within a team context, that's probably the most, um, minimal amount of commitment that to make, right? That's on the one end, on the other end, it might be like speaking at a big international conference, right? Or something like a meetup in the middle, but yeah, hopefully to give them enough confidence, at least to speak in just in a team setting, not in front of the whole company or anything. Um, because we also do like engineering wide tech talks. That's a bit, yeah, that's a bit more, it's a bit more pressure, but within a team, it's like very relaxed. Um, so just doing this kind of things, um, again, all the cross pollination stuff, um, yeah, I think the more that you can kind of uh, mix things up, break things up and trade different kind of experiences for engineers, I think the more productive they'll be um, individually, but also as a, as a team. Yeah, awesome. Uh, some great points that you ma made there about the, um, you know, the, the, the cross collaboration and shifting people around different teams to boost you know um, new ideas coming up and and being able to work in different environments obviously you know to keep keep engagement as well you know um i'm sure you know that if you're working on the same thing for months and months on end you know there's got to be a point where mentally you're thinking oh i wish i was doing something else so for you to be in a situation where you you can offer that to um to your your employees that's awesome um Saurabh, did you have anything to to add to that Sure. I, I think for me personally, uh, uh, the best thing you can do for your team is to have uh, a lot of like psychological safety and security and uh, build trust within the team. I think that's that's the core of it. Um, building psychological safety means people having being able to speak their minds, and you know that that happens obviously over a period of time when new people join. You know, like they obviously. Uh, when they're new to the team, um, the rest of the team has to ensure that they are able to get the forum that they, uh, they want to obviously voice um, uh, any kind of feedback or improvements that the team can do. Uh, so, you know, we, like, for example, we have retrospectives every like couple of weeks to look at how we can do things better. And, and those are like the forums where uh, I have seen some teams when I've worked with some of like uh, other like collaborative with external stakeholders that the external teams are not able to speak up in the same fashion as the as our teams, you know, because they feel that they might have some consequence as a result of that. So that like if, if your team uh, is going through that, then there's something wrong, definitely. <laughs> um, and also. Uh, I my company where, where I work uh, is is a distributed first company and it used to be that even pre-COVID so uh, there was a lot of like things in onboarding that actually helped to reduce the friction of communication uh, early on which, which which was kind of like there were a few things like for example uh, which said uh, when you say hello to somebody don't just say hello just write the whole question or a statement beforehand and say hello this is my question because otherwise that other person would listen to you will just look at your hello and be waiting for you to actually type the whole question 
you know so that that basically helped uh, break down one barrier of communication there were other things like uh, uh, assume that the other person has good intentions even if they don't go slack communication is hard and text-based communication is hard so if the other person comes off as say rude do have other considerations in your mind for example they are from a different culture or community english may not be the first language or maybe they are just having a bad day you know so just just cut them some slack no pun intended but yeah so those kind of things um just building trust within the team and you know um be being more kind to each other um helps foster that good team environment and that that's what brings out the most productivity uh among the team yeah Awesome. Yeah, no, so, some very good points there. Um, Rich, I uh, I saw, saw your hand go up a bit earlier. Was there something that you've you've got to add to that? Uh, just, you know, it's sort of exciting what these guys have said. It's, it's you know, it's a very good conversation. One, one thing that I've noticed is um, if you can get the developers to understand what they're developing and how their contribution um, adds to the entire project and how they've contributed it's a really good motivation factor because they can see what they've done how their work is affecting people and what the end result is and i've found that if you get people motivated in that respect and they're part of you know a cog in a whole wheel or you know Mm. it's a big machine but their contribution is really really important and you get that buy-in and instead of people just coming to work ticking a box, you know, doing this, doing that, ticking off things in, in Jira or ClickUp, whatever you're using, they're actually engaging better and offering you ideas and ways to do it because they want to improve your product or your service or whatever you're doing. So if you can get them engaged and show them that entire um, length of the project, I don't know if that's the right word, um, it's a good way to motivate them instead of they thinking of just, you know, they're in front of a screen hacking out code or whatever so yeah yes that's a good point yeah, yeah. probably something else i wanted to add as well i think Risha already kind of touched on this anyway i think it's it's almost like captain obvious but maybe somebody who's listening maybe it's not but you know obviously you need like a very strong um no blame culture in the company and i think um, I, I don't i still don't know to what extent this is normalized in the entire industry i would like to think it is but um, I'm just very happy because both like myself and the other senior engineering people all the way up to the CTO um, in our company have a very strong um, bias towards this this kind of no blame concept. Uh, let's just try and resolve things, do things better. Um, I think that's is just incredibly useful. Um, but I still hear like from acquaintances and friends that there are companies that seem to be the opposite of this. And I can't imagine how or why or why anybody would even stay at such a company. But yeah, I feel like it always goes without saying, but I think it is worthwhile just quickly saying that as well. Yeah. No, awesome. I appreciate that. Um, cool. Okay. Um, so, Saurabh, I know, I know you wanted to speak about this. How, how does diversity in a team help us build a high-performing team? Sure. So, um According to me, I've like having diverse backgrounds uh, is particularly particularly helpful. Uh, for example, and this can be like this can be multiple 
things, you know, you can have a different cultural background or maybe like a different background as an engineer or, you know, a tech person. So for example, if somebody uh, was previously a QA and they trans transitioned into a development role, they can bring some really unique insights on how like QA and development can work together and, you know, how to evolve their processes and things like that, you know. Uh, Likewise, having uh, people from other communities and cultures can also, you know, just enrich the team and, you know, you can have better team cohesion activities, like Max said, like earlier, you can have, you know, celebrate festivals together, you can, you know, talk about like things that are unique to your culture. Um, yeah. And like, finally, like the having people from like both junior and senior levels also is the kind of diversity I really like. I think a lot of times seniors do get stuck in their ways a little and try to do things that they have seen from their career and sometimes juniors can actually bring a really nice fresh perspective to things so um and they, they can see the problem slightly different way and you know uh, can can just bring a new way of thinking so uh and obviously it, it it works both ways they can obviously learn from the experience of seniors as well I'm not saying that seniors uh, experience doesn't matter. It's just that they are, they can, juniors can always bring a fresh perspective within the team. So it's, it's always good to mix that up as well. 100%. Max, over to you. Oh, uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I totally 100% agree with everything you said. Um, even, even like some of the maybe not so obvious things, like, yeah, having people of a different seniority, right? Having people who come from both um, agencies and product companies, they're going to have an entirely different way of looking at things, right? Yeah. Having people that come from different um, uh, sectors of the industry, they're going to have a different way of looking at things, right? Um, so us, Cover Genius, we're a very global company. Um, that is to say we have to serve customers in every part of the world, every country. And that's, that is extremely interesting, but it's also immensely challenging for hundred different reasons um and i just like in most countries like this is a kind of a privilege of being in australia is that it's insanely um insanely multicultural compared to almost any other part of the world like you can go to any european country you can go to like us always makes a big deal about being multicultural like oh it's not really compared to australia it's, it's nowhere near it um we i don't believe that our company would have been very successful if we launched out of anywhere else. Um, some of the things that we had to do, especially when we were much smaller, like obviously we have a lot more resourcing now, but when we had, you know, 20 people, 30 people, um, we still had to serve customers in many different countries, right? And you can imagine um, the complexities around some things. Like for example, one of the products we work on is payments. Payments is so inherently different in different parts of the world, right? How banking and payments work in Europe is very different to the US. It's very different to Northeast Asia, very different to Southeast Asia. Um, just to be able to make something like that work in every country is so, so, so complicated. No amount of vendors can can possibly solve this problem for you, like believe me. And I think that when we launched um, one of these products, we actually had to get everybody to test it because many people have bank accounts still in the countries where they're from, or if not, perhaps their parents, um, their uncles, aunts. And fortunately, we can we could get like I think somewhere between forty and fifty different countries tested all around the world. And without without that kind of effort, and it was like a whole company effort. It wasn't just our engineering team. We got 
everybody. Which is probably also another point is that um, you know it's really good to have not just engineers, but if you have um, you know other functions in the company like sales or marketing or whatever else. In our case, it might be insurance, finance. It's really good to to create these relationships within the company as well. It's really bad if you know different um, different functions, different departments are siloed out and never talk to each other. I'm I'm really against that. Um, but to have that to have that kind of diversity. Um, to have that opportunity to be able to, you know, utilize these people, their knowledge um, in the countries they're from, or maybe countries they've traveled to, they've visited, right, as well. That's super, super useful um, to be able to give them, even to do simple things like proofread translations or offer, offer insight into how something works in their countries, right? How does X work in your country? How does Y work in your country? How do people get around? How does train travel work how does public transport work how do payments work how does how is the work culture like all of these things are very 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 beneficial um and they really if you want to be a like if we're talking about like serious global companies like companies that are going to benefit australia benefit the economies that are going to export high value services all around the world like the you know the biggest the most serious companies that is so 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 valuable that is infinitely valuable to have um, different kinds of people from all around the world to, to make the kind of contribution. Awesome. Nice one, Max. Um, Rich, over to you. Um, so excellent points everyone's raised. Um, I just wanted to add a different perspective. Uh, I won't go over what we've already talked about, but um, diversification or diversity for skill sets, um, super, super key. And a c- clear example would be you don't really want to get your devs to make a UI and you don't want designers to implement new functions because that's not their experience. So it's really important to have a team that gels really, really well with these silos of knowledge. Like you've got a really strong dev team, you've got a really good design team, and I'm just being very general there, but they work in harmony. And I, I don't own a, I own a single Apple product, but Apple does it really well. They, they've got their software and their hardware down really, really well. And they create a really good product that looks good, but also functions. So you, in a team, you want to bring these silos of knowledge, let those people mm. excel in those knowledge areas. And you've got sort of an experience pool that can create a really good product. And if you've gelled your team really well, they're going to be able to take a, a, a piece of functionality and then design a, mass, a really good interface that works really well and, and vice versa. So uh, it's really, really important to um, make sure you've got the skill set, the diversification of skills that your product or service needs in order to have, uh, you know, cutting edge or, or uh, um, a product that's going to beat the competitors, I guess. So for sure. Awesome. Well, yeah, as, as, as you say, Rich, there were, there were some, uh, some great points that were covered. Um, and, you know, definitely opened my eyes with it, with a lot of it. And, and you know, I've, I've thought, I've thought about, you know, other areas that, that I didn't even, you know, it didn't even cross my mind before. So, um, yeah, no, great, great, great input, guys. Um, okay, awesome. So, um, and, and finally, going from managing the managing of a small team to a larger team or a set of teams how do you effectively pass on the ownership of the things that you're doing to enable scalability max i know um you wanted to to speak about that i'll let you uh, let you yeah um yeah so this is a 
this is the interesting thing I was thinking about, um, and I think we're we're doing it reasonably well. But um, the thing is, I'm, I'm sure there are ways that we could be doing it better. I just don't know how. So I really wanted to throw that open um, to the conversation. Yeah. So essentially, like my experience in my current company is that we started with one team of um, you know four people, two developers, me, and a product manager, and now we have a team of like twenty or and over twenty people with many different products, right? So obviously you can't go from point A to point B without um, a huge amount of delegation and movement of responsibilities between different people because there's no way you can have one person doing everything for, you know, two and twenty people. It's not possible. Um, so the question is what's what's the reasonable and scalable way from going to point A to point B? When do you hire um, a set of other I don't know, people to manage this and that, whether they be managers or product managers, scrum masters. Um, how do you scale out, you know, different different parts, different functions of your team? Um, how do you pass that ownership? So obviously, like in my experience, um, trying to create some kind of formalized processes and documented processes around doing all sorts of things, not even just work-related things, like it might be, might be something like setting up social events or setting up meetups, I don't know, something. Um, so that's that's really helpful. Um, creating some kind of like barriers towards, you know, if you found the person that owned, let's say, ten different things, so making it very clear which individuals own which things, you know, at some point in time in the future. Um, trying to pop hand that over to them, like kind of mentor them on doing that, ensure that they're doing a good job. Um, ideally, if you can promote people from within, um, obviously they would have seen a lot of examples of you doing something or some set of things. So hopefully they will have seen what works and what doesn't and, you know, how to do things successfully. Hopefully they have some ideas of their own as well, but at the very least they can see, um, they could have witnessed how things were done and what were the challenges, what were the issues, uh, what were the solutions, and to have at least that background of what works and what, what doesn't. Um, if you bring new people in, which is also, I think, uh, as a new people at the management level, I think it's sometimes inevitable. I think we all know that in many situations, engineers don't particularly like to go into management. Um, so at some point, you will probably be in a situation where you have to bring in new new managers. Um, so how do you kind of try and hand over years and years of accumulated um, knowledge and processes and years and years of you know trying things, failing, iterating, failing, succeeding, and, and the context of all of that? Um, how do you kind of hand it over to them? That's something that I think is quite challenging, actually. Um, I haven't found a very good solution to that, so maybe maybe that's one question I would love to, to ask you guys in general. Yeah, sure. Um, Rich, what about yourself? Um, so, it's, it's I guess it's the knowledge transfer is the topic, and you're going to have to deal with that in two different ways. Obviously, if you've got new people coming on, or or people leaving the company. Um, it depends how much time you've got between handover. The best case scenario is you've got a handover period of a certain amount of time, um, and you've got to assume that um, the people are going to document it, but the people that are going to hand it over are going to read the documentation. But the, there's going to be things that are inferred or assumed, assumed knowledge that's not transferred. So there'll be questions and um, things like that. So the knowledge transfer, and, and I forget the terminology, but 
I've read somewhere that documentation is only going to transfer 10 to 20% of the knowledge that you'll need of the next system. The way you're going to get the rest of that is hands down playing with it, asking questions and breaking it. So um, you've got to have that transfer period. Now that not every case is like that. Someone might be the end of the contract, they're leaving tomorrow because they've got, you know, two weeks of leave and they've done their two weeks notice and that's the worst case. So um, if people are leaving, you've got to ask them like, you know, can you can you at least be available to ask answer questions or things like that? And they, they can say no. But um, hopefully they've, you know, they've left it in a point that you can transfer it. Um, and, 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 it's, and it's done like that. The other case is a situation where you've got an entire product and it's just sitting there and you need to transfer it or people are shifting around in the company. Um, experience goes a long way there. It doesn't matter how much documentation you have. And this is just speaking, speaking from experience. Um, there, there's just no, no second thing to, to, to knowledge. And you've got to have a, a product expert, but um, that's going to be able to answer questions to bring it over to the new team. You've got to make sure, um, again, there's a situation where if you're hiring a new person to take over a new team, you some I've seen situations where they've tried to, okay, what's your skill set? We'll try to find a person exactly like you and hire that person, but that might not be the case. And you might have to absorb some of the skills of that person or that team that's leaving in another area and get the new team members or the new person or whoever to take on part of that role until they can take on the rest of it or that role might grow into a certain area. Um, so it's very, very case by case. And what I've just offered is general advice. Um, so uh, I guess that's my two cents. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I personally feel that documentation like you said is not like obviously one person's job or it's not uh not something that you have to do it at the end of it or you know uh it's it's something that's uh ongoing and something that document is always living that's what i personally feel so like the way i've handled it in the past is instead of having one big documentation i just try to leave a trail of documents for everything that you have done so it could be like a rates register which puts puts things in context of why did you take that decision at what point of time and what were the key considerations that uh that were taken into you know account for that um it could be an rfp that you did uh, for a particular um and things like rfps and prds become really important as uh, companies grow because then when you say this was the initial RFP and this is what it evolved into, this is what was implemented, you can see the whole documented trail of like, okay, this was this was people's thought process behind it, and you know, this is why these decisions were taken in the first place. Um, and then, then when somebody like comes back to that a year later, they 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 know the context um, around it and stuff like that. So, and also, uh, it, it's also. Uh, uh, shared across different teams, right? So uh, when you create an RFC, uh, I'll dial that back a little bit. We worked with a team that was literally just five people and it grew to like 200 people within like a span of one and a half years. And the way that transition was handled was we started at some point, we started drawing lines around the domains each team were trying to handle. 
So, so say like they, they handled one part of the app and uh, we said like these five people, it will be a cross-functional team, a backend engineer, a front-end engineer, a designer and a product person. And all of them can handle this uh, this whole like part of uh, the app that's just customer facing or maybe like uh, like a business domain basically, you know. So just draw lines around domain um, and then they have the entire ownership. So whenever they implemented a new feature, the product team, product person would come up with a PRD and distribute it across all the teams. And the tech team would come up with an RFC because that would, their implementation would affect others as well, right? So the others also have to have like a say in that. So, um, and teams would have like open discussions for between them for that RFC. So knowledge is shared, uh, dear dear, knowledge is shared. It, it's everyone's responsibility. And I try to leave, I tr- personally try to leave a documented trail of, you know, whatever happened uh, during the life cycle of the project, instead of like having one big document that tries to encompass it all. Awesome. No, great stuff. Um, well, again, as I've, as I've already mentioned, look, there's been, been some great um great thoughts and insights that have been been contributed there is is there anything else anybody wanted to add on on, on that topic good no uh, good all all good well look um as i say it's been uh, been a great point of conversation um there's uh, there's been some really good points that have been made and uh, i think you know our listeners will uh, will definitely be able to take some uh, some words of wisdom from from you guys and and hopefully implement it into their own situations um and it'll be interesting to see you know what what uh, you know what feedback we get from that but um just wanted to say thanks uh, thanks guys for joining um been great to uh, to listen to you all and uh, really appreciate you coming on board 